want to invite you to come back to your seats. We're going to continue on. Please continue those conversations after the service. We'd love for you to stay, talk as much as you want. Um, uh, but we are going to continue on now. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road, and we are really glad to see you this morning on this beautiful morning, Easter morning that God has given us. Um, those of you who are guests with us, uh, really good uh, to see you, and we're honored that you would choose to spend um, some time with us on this Sunday morning. Those of you watching at home, uh, welcome. We're glad you're checking in as well. I'm going to read the text uh, this morning. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. This is from Luke, uh, beginning chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this day. So thankful for just this, this, uh, the resurrection that we observe and celebrate today, this pivotal moment in history that we're looking at. So thankful that your son did what he did on behalf of undeserving uh, rebels like myself and everyone else in this room. That you give us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy, and we're so thankful for that. So I pray as we look at your word this morning that we would be encouraged, that we would feel hopeful, and that we would see that you have provided a way for humanity who was alienated and separated for God. You have made a way for human beings to be reunited, to be reconciled to you. And that is the greatest gift that we could have ever have received, any of us have received, and we're thankful for that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Last June, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, wrote uh, an article um, talking about um, all of these gigantic changes that were going on in our country at the time. And you can remember back to last June... And you can remember what all was happening during this season. We were, we were still early on in the, in the pandemic and trying to figure out um, uh, what this was, what corona was, and ha- how we were going to handle COVID and all of these things. We had, racial tensions were high. The economy was headed down. We were in the midst of a, of, a, of a tense election season. All of these things were happening. And he writes um, this, this paragraph in this article I want to read. He says, these changes each reflecting a huge crisis and hitting all at once, 
have created a moral, spiritual, and emotional disaster. Americans are now less happy than at any time since they started measuring happiness nearly 50 years ago. Americans are now uh, expressed less pride in their nation than at any time since Gallup started measuring it 20 years ago. And so over the last year, much of what we have looked to for stability, for trust, for hope has been shaken, at best shaken and at worst destroyed for some of us. And here we are in 2021. So the message uh, that comes along with Easter this year is of an extreme importance. This message that, that brings us hope and joy and freedom is timely and it's needed. But this hope, joy, and freedom does not come through human achievement or human progress or humanity trying to fix all of the issues with the world right now. This message comes from God. So that makes what we are going to talk about today so, so important. And I just want to kind of get our cards on the table here because I don't know some of your backgrounds and, and where you're coming from and what kind of the Easter weekend means for you all. But what we are celebrating is not that winter is over and spring is here. It's not that the weather is, is getting better and, and it's, 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 it's a little bit easier to be outside. It's not about that. It's not about bunnies or eggs or flowers blooming or even about that great spread that you're going to have after this at your parents' house or at the restaurant you go to. None of these things are necessarily bad, but this is not what Easter is about. And I want to make that clear. Easter is about that, that this fact that we believe that Jesus was literally and physically murdered. He was murdered. And, it was in a, and he was in a grave from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. And then he was raised from the dead, brought back to life, literally and physically. Wasn't a magic trick. Wasn't a spiritual thing. Jesus wasn't a ghost. He was brought back to life in bodily form, literally and physically. The Apostle Paul uh, talks through this, teaches through this in a letter he wrote. The Apostle Paul, Paul's one of, these, uh, one of these leaders in the early church, wrote a lot of the New Testament. And this is um, a letter he wrote to the church in the city of Corinth. And he begins chapter 15 um, of this letter with these uh, several verses talking about the resurrection. Listen to this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then a few verses down in verse 17, Paul says this statement. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So Paul is teaching here the importance of the resurrection, the importance of what we observe today. He's basically saying, and he will say further down from this verse, that if, the resur if Jesus isn't alive, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, we should be pitied. What we're doing is worthless. It's empty if Jesus isn't alive today, if he didn't come back from the dead. Our faith is nothing without the resurrection, Paul would go on to say. 
So if that's the case, Paul would say, you should just eat, drink, be merry, put all of your energy and life and focus into what's on earth and live it up because once we die, we'll go back to the dust and it's all over for all of us. That's the, that's the narrative if Jesus isn't alive. So Paul wants to drive that home for us. Now, the first question that many of you may ask, and, and most of us have asked it at some point in our lives, is how can we trust this? How do we know this happened, this, this event called the resurrection? And when this is brought up, often the burden of proof is put on the person who believes in the resurrection rather than the burden of proof put on the person who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and this, but this morning, we're going to focus on kind of the, 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 the ways that we see the resurrection actually happening and the evidence that we see. Just a few minutes doing that, um, and then we'll move on a bit to the next part. The secular world has put much time and energy in research trying to figure out throughout the centuries, 2,000 years, trying to understand what happened at the resurrection. Because something happened. There's enough there that, that Jesus' body isn't there. And that's a, that's a fact, right? So now the question is, what happened to his body? And that's really what, um, what scholars and academics in the secular world, along with the Christian scholars and researchers as well, but the, I'm making the point that even, in, even among people who don't have faith, who don't believe in Jesus, there's still this intrigue trying to understand what actually happened. Like I said, we don't have time to walk through all of the theories about what might have happened. Uh, so I want to focus on what we believe actually happened in the resurrection. How did this happen? This, this historical, um, circumstantial evidence, it's there. It's there. But there's also biblical evidence. In the first place we see the biblical evidence is in Isaiah 53. Okay? And there's other prophets who've written about this as well. But there are prophecies dating 700 years prior to Jesus being alive that describes in detail the last week of Jesus' life, how he would die, how he would come into the city, how he would be raised, 700 years prior to these events actually happening, down, predicted down to the detail. You have Jesus telling big groups of his followers what was going to happen to them just, just a few days and weeks before he would go into Jerusalem to face death. He told them in detail what would happen to them multiple times. So many, many people heard these things. And I think the greatest kind of proof or evidence of the resurrection we get from the scriptures are the eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. Let's continue on in that passage we were looking at a moment ago from Paul, verse 5. Paul says this, And then he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which means to die. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So after the resurrection, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples, and he doesn't say, hey, just believe me, guys, just trust me, just have faith that what you see, what you're looking at is real. No, he, does, he doesn't say that. He said he, he eats with them. He, he spends time with them. He actually asks the disciples to touch him, to engage with him. So this isn't a spiritual thing. Like Jesus is giving us tangible scientific evidence that he is actually alive. And then Paul makes this, the, the claim here, 500 witnesses. 
500 witnesses, and others corroborate Paul's claim here. Other historians corroborate that probably up to 500 people actually saw Jesus after the, the resurrection. Now, you think in any court of law, if someone is, is, uh, is, is um, uh, accused of a crime, if there is one witness to corroborate the story of the crime, the person who's the, the defendant is, is probably guilty, right? One, wit, one eyewitness can put you away, can convict you. Think about 500 witnesses of the same thing. That, that would stand up in any court of law at any time and in any history. 500 people witnessing this. And then the last one I'll mention is Jesus' family, right? Like after the resurrection, Jesus' family believed that Jesus had re- was God and rose from the dead. You think of James' half-brother, right? How, how do you trick your half-brother into thinking that uh, if, you, if, you, if, this is a, if this is a charade and, and, and Jesus was a fake and a fraud, how are you going to convince your half-brother? This is the people who know Jesus the best, and he, he, you couldn't pull the wool over their eyes. So much so that James was given uh, multiple occasions to, to uh, deny his faith, to recant uh, the message about Jesus and be set free. But tradition tells us James was tortured, he was, and he was murdered for his faith. Now, would James do that? Would James go to those links if Jesus was a fake or a fraud? I don't think so. So when you combine the historical evidence with the biblical evidence, there is ample, there's plenty of, of, of evidence. Not just, not just spiritual evidence or subjective evidence. This is intellectual evidence. This isn't biblical necessarily. It is intellectual evidence that the historical Jesus was actually put on trial, was actually killed by the Roman Empire, and was resurrected three days later and is still alive because he is the Son of God. Amen? This is the, this is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we worship. Now, if this is true, if the resurrection is true, then there are implications. And this is what Paul was saying, right? Paul was saying, if this didn't happen, then our faith is, is, is nothing. So if it did happen, there are major implications. And I want to focus on three for the rest of our time. So if you're here and you're a skeptic, um, I pray that I, I've at least, I've at least um, made you think about this enough that you'll consider these three implications. Number one, the resurrection frees us from guilt and shame that we all experience. Jesus fully paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. But the resurrection is what gives us freedom that the cross alone could not. This is why the resurrection is so important. In Tim Keller's new book um, called um, Hope in Times of Fear, it's an incredible book. I encourage you to get it. Um, He has this illustration of of how the resurrection kind of connects to uh, the cross. And he says it's like you're at a store. Think of a grocery store, and um, you buy, you purchase your, your stuff, you put them in the sacks, and you put it in your, the, the, the car, and you're, you're wheeling it out to your car. But before you can get through those doors, there's someone there that's going to ask for your receipt at certain stores, right? And that person can prevent you from leaving with your, the stuff you've purchased, right? Like they can, if you refuse to show them your receipt, you're going to have to put all of your stuff down and walk out empty-handed, so that person is the gatekeeper. They, they have the keys to your freedom. And so once they look at your receipt, check it off, they say, yep, it's been paid in full, you're free to go. And then you walk out the doors 
free to take your stuff home. And Keller's making the point that this is like the resurrection. The cross buys us the things. The cross gets us to the door, but the resurrection is the stamp of approval that has been paid in full. It's the gateway to our freedom. That is something the cross alone couldn't give us. And this is why Paul, again, is saying the resurrection is so important. We have as our identity now, as followers of Jesus, we are, we are his children. We are his sons. We are his daughters. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are loved. We don't have to be enslaved by constant guilt and shame over things we've done in our past or things we're doing in the present. We don't have to be chained to those things anymore because the resurrection tells us that Jesus has paid for those things in full. Now, if you don't buy into the resurrection, you're going to have problems with guilt and shame. This is a human problem. We're going to look to other people for our approval, for our acceptance. Our freedom and joy is going to rise and fall based off our circumstances. If things are going well for us, we'll probably be happy. If things do not go well for us, we probably won't be happy. And this, the, the, the David Brooks article I mentioned earlier, stats show that, right? The studies show that, that lowest levels of happiness in years, right? 2020 was a very tough year for a lot of us because of the circumstances around us, okay? The resurrection is important, okay? Listen to another passage of teaching that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You're not condemned if you're in Christ. You can, you, your, your guilt, your shame is crushed under the weight of the cross and the resurrection. And this is good news, right? This is the, the, the good news that we talk about, that we preach about, that we want people to believe in. But to understand good news, you have to know what the bad news is. What is the bad news? It's that we've turned our backs on God. We've taken credit for things in our lives that he alone deserves credit for. We take for granted basic things like the air we breathe, and we don't give a second thought to thank him for giving us those things. We pretend like we're a God and we can make our own decisions and we can save ourselves, that we're good enough to live this life without God's help. We think we can be the final arbitrators of what is right and what is wrong. We feel like we can determine what is right and what is wrong instead of seeing him as the final arbitrator of what truth actually is and what is right and what is wrong. But the good news is that God has made a way for sinners and rebels like you and I. He's made a way, and this is the good news, and it has nothing to do with our performance Nothing to do with your sin in the past or in the present or in the future. It's through Christ's work on the cross and in the resurrection that we've been made, there's been made a way for us to stand before God and have acceptance by God, to stand in his presence. There's therefore, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And some of you may be saying, now, well, Pastor Jeremy, you just don't know my past. There's no condemnation. The scriptures say it. Well, you don't know the way I live my life in the last couple weeks. Doesn't matter. No condemnation. Well, I haven't been to church in years. Church attendance is not what saved you. It's important, but it doesn't save you. There's now no condemnation if you are in 
Christ. That is a gift that is offered us that we receive by faith. Look at Peter. Think of Peter, this, this, uh, one of uh, Jesus' closest disciples. Peter was a fisherman. And when Jesus called Peter to be his disciple, to follow him, Peter was finishing fishing, pulling his boat up, and Jesus looks at him and says, come be uh, my follower. Come be a fisher of men. Peter, Scripture tells Peter dropped his nets and immediately followed Jesus. And we don't have a lot of detail with that, but I can imagine for Peter to do what he did, he must have been feeling this, this overwhelming sense of, of love and acceptance and having a new identity and having someone like Jesus look at him and say, I want you to follow me. I want to be your friend. I want you to follow in my footsteps. I want to give you a purpose. So Peter does. For three years, he spends time with Jesus. He's one of the, one of the closest followers to Jesus, the scripture tells us. And then a few days prior to leading up to Jesus's arrest, Jesus is having this conversation with Peter. And Peter is, is really confident, right? He's really confident at this point. He says, Lord, I, I, Jesus has just told him, hey, I, this is what's going to happen to me. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You know, I, I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm ready. Let's do this. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow this day until it will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He says, this is what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to deny me three times, and then a rooster is going to crow. To, to crow. And then uh, the, the soldiers come to arrest him. Peter, again, is fired up. He's excited. He cuts one of the Roman uh, soldiers' ear off, the scripture tells us. Jesus says, hang on, Peter. Put, put the sword up. This is not the way things are going to go down. And it appears Peter follows the, the guards down to where they're going to keep Jesus, and he's sitting there in the courtyard Close to trying to, to remain close to Jesus in this moment, and then Peter st- people start to recognize Peter. Hey, are, are you a friend of Jesus? I think I've seen you with him. And he says, No, 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 no. I, I don't know him. I'm not associated with him. I'm not a follower of his. You, you must be thinking of someone else. And Peter denies it three times when asked on three occasions. Then the Bible tells us, just in this short little statement, that Jesus made eye contact with Peter. And then it says, Peter remembers that Jesus told him this would happen. And it says, he left and wept bitterly. Like, can you imagine the guilt and the shame in Peter's heart, deep in Peter in that moment? His Savior, the one he pledged his life to, the one he said, I will never leave you. I'll be there for you till the end, Jesus. I'm coming with you, no matter what. I'll even fight for you. He denies him. He gets scared. He becomes a coward. And Jesus looks at him, and Peter takes off, and it says he wept bitterly. Feelings of shame and guilt and, 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 and I'm sure unworthiness probably washed over Peter. Then you have this moment at the end of the Gospel of John. We don't have time to look at the story, but they're fishing, they're fishing again. Jesus comes to the beach, to the water's edge, probably similar to the, the water's edge, where Jesus first met Peter, Peter first met Jesus, and Jesus initiates this conversation he has with Peter. And you can imagine Peter, after he knows that Jesus is alive, he is, he is sick to his stomach. What am I going to tell him? What am I going to say to him? I failed him. I was a coward. And Jesus comes to him. He has this sweet moment, this conversation with Peter, where he says, he says, uh, are you okay? Are we good? 
Like, do, do, do you want to follow me? I, and basically communicating to Peter, I'm all right with you. We're good. Jesus renews the relationship with Peter. And this just crushes Peter's guilt and shame. And we're going to see a little bit later what Peter turns into after this moment. So the resurrection, the first implication, it frees us from our guilt and shame. The second one, the second implication, it frees us from the things that control us and the things that enslave us. Here again, Paul is in a letter he wrote to the church in Colossae. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, he says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, which is sin. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That last line is, is, is huge. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. So we as human beings are going to be controlled by something. We're going to put our hope in something. We talked a lot about this last week, but I want to touch on it again. We, we have access to more information than any other generation in history. Uh, we have what they would have called supercomputers 40 years ago in our pockets, we have unlimited access to consume entertainment. Like never before in the world have we had this. Yet we are bored, unhappy, restless, anxious, fearful. And then on top of that, you throw in a year like 2020 with racial tensions, the worst pandemic we've seen in over 100 years, a chaotic and, 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 and uh, tension-filled election season that most of us have, have never seen before. And this, I think, has exposed in all of us, if we were honest, the things in the world that we put our hope in, the things in the world that control us, the things in the world that give us a sense of hope and a sense of peace. And we need to allow those things and kind of name those things and identify those things. Be honest with ourselves. Yeah, I, I, was, I was looking to this to provide me something that I shouldn't have been looking to to provide me. Stability or knowing what tomorrow's like, or the ability to see other people without masks, or whatever it is, it has done something, I think, to all of us. And what this has driven home, uh, at least for me, is that we were made for more than what we have in this world. What, what we have in this world is never going to be enough. And the more we make our lives about Jesus, we receive freedom and hope and joy and peace. And the more we make this about us, and our desires and what we want, the more exhausted, anxious, angry, frustrated we will be. Because if, if it's up to you, if life is all about you, all the weight, all the pressure, all the anxiety is on you. If that's, if that's, if that's the way you're living your life. And you will transfer that anxiety, you'll transfer that fear to other people around you. And they will become frustrated. They will become anxious. They will become fearful. And it will, the cycle will continue and continue. And if you don't get what you want, the frustration builds and builds and builds. And you will never have the kind of freedom and joy that Jesus promises us in the scriptures. You think about Peter again. The same after, so Jesus come, rises from the dead. He, he, he has this conversation with Peter, kind of reinstates him in some way, at least in Peter's mind, to the, the cause, to the group. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. 
And he sends the disciples out now to, to, to share the gospel. And this is the, the birth of what we would call the church. And some, the same religious leaders that handed Jesus over to the Romans started telling the disciples, hey, stop it. Stop preaching. Stop, stop saying these things. You're causing, it was messing with their power structure. They were, it was, they were creating waves. People were, were believing in um, the person and work of Jesus. And, and, and Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, told them, and this is in Acts, he's in Acts 4, I believe, says, we can't help but speak from what we've heard and what we've seen. You can't shut us up. There's no way I can be silent about what I've seen and heard, period. Now, and, and then we see that, that all the, the, the 11 out of the 12 disciples who were faithful would all die um, a death because of their faith. 10 out of those 11 would be martyred for their faith. The other one would be exiled to an island to die an old man by himself. But Peter was one of the ones who was martyred for his faith. And he said it there at the end when he was about to be, to be crucified. He wanted to be crucified upside down, tradition tells us, because he didn't want to be associated. He didn't think he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner of, that Jesus was. So what happens? Like what, like, what happened to Peter? What happened to the other? Peter was a coward. These other disciples were scared. They abandoned Jesus. They said, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. They were confused. They thought he was going to be a different king. They, 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 all of these things, yet, these were, and they were commoners, had zero power, and yet, after the resurrection, something happens. What, what was that? Well, there's two things. One, it was, it was the resurrection. It was seeing Jesus and seeing the resurrection. Like These guys wouldn't have changed this quick unless they saw and they believed in the resurrection. And they also had the Holy Spirit given to them. And these are the two things that uh, the Holy Spirit is something that, that, that followers of Jesus receive upon having faith. And it empowers us to be able to do the things God's called us to do. And so we just see, if we just even watch Peter and the other disciples, the change in them after the resurrection, how big of a deal it was. They, were, they weren't going to be controlled by fear anymore. They were going to be controlled by the things of the world. It was all about the purpose and work of making disciples and seeing churches planted all the way until they suffered a martyr's death, all because of what they saw in the resurrection. So we are freed up as followers of Jesus to love Christ first, to love God first, to love others second, and us third. And we can't get that order switched. It gives us a new direction. It gives us a new purpose for how we live our life. Last implication, third one. The resurrection brings us freedom from the fear of death and hope of life after death. Okay, so death is scary for all of us to some degree, I think. Death is scary. Death is hard. It was all around us this past year. For some of us, it became really close to us as we lost people in the last year. And we as human beings do everything possible to decrease the chances of us dying. It's a human thing. We just let's, uh, the, the billions and billions of dollars that are spent on trying to prolong our lives. The, what the resurrection gives us is it guarantees us and gives us proof that we will experience life after death. That death is not the end. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, again, a little bit further down in that passage. Paul says this, But in each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until 
He has put all, inter- all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Jesus conquered death when he rose from the dead. Now, he conquered death, and this gives us a preview, a couple things. One, it gives us a preview of what our bodies are going to look like uh, in the eternal state when we spend forever with God in heaven. This is, he gives us a preview of what our bodies are going to be like. And also, the other thing he gives us, instead of being fearful of death, instead of being afraid of death, instead of doing all of these things in our life on earth to prolong our life or to prevent us from dying, we can face death with confidence. Not that it won't still sting, because we're on this side of heaven. It'll still sting. It'll still hurt. But our approach and our outlook on death can be different, because we know death is the beginning of a new phase of our Christian life. Death actually brings us into God's presence. Death gives us a chance to see Jesus face to face, where we can receive pure love, pure hope, pure peace and joy. The things that are tainted by this world, the things that are tainted by our own sin, we'll be able to see those things as they truly are in heaven. So death, as he would say later in this passage, death loses its sting. Does it still hurt? Yes. Is it still sad? Yes. But we see death as something different. Scriptures also say that, that we, we grieve in death as those who have hope that there's something after life. We have hope even in the midst of our sadness of death. That is the third implication, that Jesus conquered death. So our outlook as followers of Jesus on death should change because of the resurrection. It is that powerful. So if Jesus is alive, if Jesus has risen from the dead, everything is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And that is anchored in the truth of the resurrection. It's not the, it's not the same message that you know, the media we hear all the time, like, we're going to get through this together, or tomorrow's a new day, or time will make things better. Those are pithy statements that don't have a lot of power. When we say everything's going to be all right because Jesus rose from the dead, it is. Because there is life after death now. There's a new beginning in front of us for those of us who have faith in Christ. So if you're here and you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you're grasping and trying to cling to things and nothing's working, you feel like you're on the verge of of falling, I promise you Jesus is someone you can grab onto and he will grab onto you back. And he will pull you up out of wherever you're at and you can have trust in that. You can bank in that, but it requires a step of faith. It does, to reach and cling to Jesus. I pray if you're in that position this morning, you'll do that. Now, relationship with Jesus comes through faith, which leads to belief, which leads to us following him. That is the way that these implications that we've talked about actually become a reality in our life. So I want to close with this. I want to put the gospel up on the screen, just so we're clear on what the gospel is. It's about as simple as you can uh, define the gospel. The gospel is the good news, right? The good news. It is good news. It's not good advice. It's not, hey, here's a pathway to a better life. No, it is news. It is something that has actually already happened, and we respond to what's actually happened. So it is news. That God, right? God's the initiator. God's the primary actor in this story. He initiates He comes to earth as a man. He comes to earth as the savior of 
the world. God is the initiator. Why did he come? To save sinners, like all of us in this room are. People who fall short of God's glory. Not people who, not people who think they're okay, not people who think they don't need a savior, whose life is okay. It's God has came to save sinners and people who actually will acknowledge they need a savior. There's humility to admit I can't be my own savior. I need Jesus to save me. And how does this happen? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The life of Jesus, he lived a perfect life that, that God demanded all of us to live because God is perfect. He is holy. We needed to live a perfect life, and we all fail at that. We fail at that consistently. I do, you do as well. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who lived a perfect life that we could not have lived. And then he died a death all of us deserve to die because of our sin. That because we fall short, Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. He is our substitute. He stands in our place and takes, takes the wrath of God so that we don't have to be punished in that way. And he rose from the dead, conquering Satan, conquering death, which you've already looked at, and conquering sin. This means past the, the, the penalty of our past sin, the, the power that sin has over you right now, that you don't have to be enslaved to sin any longer, and the presence of sin, that we will be free of sin one day in the future when Jesus returns or we die and are uh, united with God for all eternity. This is the gospel. This is it. Now, what we have to do, we have to respond. So my question for you as we close how are you going to respond? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for this news. And I'm thankful for your word that you've revealed yourself. You've told us the story of the good news in your word. I'm so thankful for that. And Father, as we are moving to a time of communion here, I pray you would Help us reflect. I pray we wouldn't fight you on this. I pray we would be honest with ourselves and that your spirit would move and we would respond how we need to respond this morning. I pray that our focus would be on your son and your grace and your mercy found in him. That in, in your presence are Pleasures forevermore, the Psalms tells us. And that's because of your son. Help us believe that. Help us have faith in that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.